Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> welcome to the After Show with Mackenzie Stewart and Amy Shannon. We have, we, have over, we have over 15 years of literary experience between us. Our mission is to educate and assist authors of all writing levels. Um, as you all know, um, I am the co-host of, uh, you know, the after show. I have with me Amy Shannon uh, here today. Um, she is a little under the weather, but um, we give uh, Amy an A for effort for coming out and not feeling well. <laughs> so, Amy, um, I I jumped in there to, to cover your part of the the script just because uh, I know you're you're having some difficulties. Well, hello. Hello, and thank you very much. Yes, this cough no. just won't go away. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! So we we definitely um, we're definitely um, you know, wanting a speedy recovery uh, for you, but we had an action-packed, um, you know, hour um, today on the show. So I'm ready to, to jump in and get started with um, our, our guest tonight. Well, we have, a, we have with us today Richard Martin. Richard, welcome to the, sh- welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, we are so tickled and delighted that you decided to join us today and talk yes. about your work. So um, one of the things that we like to do, we like for all of our authors to tell us a little bit about themselves and then how you um, started, you know, telling stories. Um, tell us how you, you started telling stories, and then we're going to jump into your, uh, your work you want to promote tonight. Yes. Well, thank you again for having me. Um, I've been writing a long time. I'm 77 years old, and this is my first published novel. I have other novels in in the pipeline that are done and ready to go. But um, oh, congratulations! Thank you. Congratulations! You're welcome. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, and and my first live interview as well. <laughs> oh wow! So a lot of firsts today. Yeah, um, well that's great. I'm a little anxious, but I'm sure once I start blabbing, that I'll 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 relax. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm 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 very grateful to. Uh, in one sense, it's like what's wrong with this picture? Somebody who's been writing a long time and is 77, and only now is having his first uh, published novel. Um, on the other hand, looking at my life, it's happened just exactly the way that it was supposed to happen for me. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I I have that. I've always had that faith. I've had that uh, confidence in my in my writing, but uh, I almost had a previous book published in 2008, 2009 with McAdam Cage, a uh, pretty well-respected little independent in uh, in uh, San Francisco, right during the uh, recession, and McAdam Cage went bankrupt shortly after and took mm-hmm. my book with it. It wasn't officially published by them, thank God, but Mm-hmm. Um, I've had just enough successes with uh, short stories published in literary journals. Originally, poems were published. Just enough success or victories uh, to keep me going, to keep me writing, to to uh, keep that confidence alive. And I've always said, even before uh, Regal House Publishing, I want to mention them and Jeannie and mm-hmm. Pam, they're... They're my angels. Uh, I love I love that that house so much and them and their work. 
um, even before uh, they wrote to me and said, yes, we want to publish your book, Oranges for Magellan, I have come to such a point in my life with those little successes, with with overall failure, I'm not ashamed to say. Um, I love writing so much that I would have kept writing anyway, right to the end, as long as my mind is, you know, uh, still clear and I can say what's going on inside me. Um, I just love writing. I'm not a tortured writer. Uh, I'm a happy writer, and I'm even more happy now to have this published. Um, I'm I'm married. I've been married to my wife, Paris, for two, I don't want to get it wrong, 27 years. <laughs> this will be 27. Um, uh, what else? I guess the, you know, the not to go into the book early, but a theme of the book is certainly father-son relationships, and the great event uh, in my life was my father suddenly dying when I was 13. He was 44. And that kind of, uh, that informs most of my stories, that sense of loss, that sense of longing, uh, that sense of what is, what is the world, what is life mean what does the world mean what is this thing called death where did it come from um and joe is having lost it joe magellan the protagonist having lost his father uh there are a lot of similar there are a lot of similarities between my life and the book not all i've never wanted to break the world's record for flagpole sitting <laughs> and i've never sat on it and i've never gone up on a flagpole but just that whole idea of you know both being both being separate from the world and yet somehow feeling like that is the way to enter more deeply into the world i another important part of my life is my sobriety um i got sober at 40 i've been sober for 36 years um i had to it helped me write in the beginning, and then at the end it was keeping me from writing. And I just had to get sober with help, both for my sanity and for my for my for my writing, because I just really couldn't write anymore. I was drinking and I wasn't writing. Congratulations um, on being sober that long. Thank you. I'll yeah. stop there. I know and, it's. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I know that it's one day at a time, but um, thank you for sharing sharing that part of your life with us. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a crucial, essential part of my life. I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be having the book published. I wouldn't be talking to you. I probably wouldn't be alive, or if I, if I was, I would be locked up somewhere if I hadn't stopped. Well, we're, we're glad you're here with us and sharing your work. Yes, absolutely. Yes, thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, in all of our our lives, um, you know, we are sharing a piece of us as we're writing. Not everything in our books are true. Well, when I say true, not not something that we want to do. But I I do think that the way that you are connecting with your readers through um, your loss, and I'm sure they can feel it also as they're reading the words, um, as the words are coming off the page for them. And you are offering someone some comfort <clears throat> um, in the stories that you're telling. Um, I think so. That's my, mm-hmm. that's my aim. Yeah. Um, so tell me, let, tell me this. Um, and you told us a lot of wonderful information about yourself, and that's what this is really all about. We want the, our audience to really connect with you, um, you know, the, the writer, so that they can – um, follow um, you through your many, many different uh, works, uh, no matter if it's a poem or a short story. Um, but we really definitely want them to follow you um, and connect with you. Um, so what, what advice, because we do have people who listen. They are, some of our published authors, um, some have published just one, um, one piece of work. Um, some of them may have stopped. Um, some of them may just be lost. What should I write next? 
you've been writing for a long time, and I I consider you know your short stories being published in journals. I I, I still you know consider that as as being published. Um, what keeps you going? Like what keeps you going? What keeps you writing? What keeps you telling stories? Um. Well, first, as I say, just the love of writing. You know, when I first started writing, I wrote poems that were just very dense and incomprehensible, probably. I loved Dylan Thomas and Gerard Manley Hopkins, who were very dense uh, poets, very lyrical and dense. And words, I've always loved words just by themselves. The poems that I wrote were more drunk on words than really... Uh, concerned with getting some kind of message across or moving somebody in one way or another. Um, And when I moved to short stories, it kind of expanded, kind of allowed me to relax a little bit and Mm -hmm. become less lyrical, less word-obsessed, and more concerned with the story, with the characters. Um, And I had a, a, a nice number of, as I say, enough stories published to keep keep me going. I'm I'm not a really ambitious person, um, but everybody wants to have their work seen and uh, enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But uh, I noticed that my stories kept getting longer, and mm-hmm. th- that put me into novels. Probably, in direct answer to your question, what keeps me going is picking a topic mm-hmm. that is bigger than me, mm. that that is <clears throat> that contains a mystery, such as Joe with his flagpole sitting, and a lot of the book is why, about why he's up there. And, of course, he's up there for many reasons. But <clears throat> it's kind of like life intrudes on his effort to break the world record. It's not really about the world record. It's that's a, that's an important hook to keep people reading, you know, to find out whether he breaks it or not, uh which I won't reveal. And don't be <laughs> sure that you know which way it goes. Um but it's I I want to, I I want to get lost in the mystery not mystery in the sense of who killed who, but mystery in the sense of the mystery of life, the mystery of why we do things that we do, the mystery of being a human being on this rock that's hurtling through outer space. Uh, and, you know, what, and indiv- as an individual, what are we, what am I as an individual supposed to be doing in the world with my time with this blessed uh, gift of uh, being and for me it was obvious pretty early on that it was to write I actually started writing letters is what I wrote first I was away at Berkeley for a year and then I was in the army in Germany for 18 months I didn't have a lot of friends I felt I was very lonely and my letters back home to my mother, my three sisters, uh, my friends, male friends, a girlfriend, all not only kept me going to to connect. That's probably the one word answer to your question is to connect with other people. Um, I was able to develop kind of different personalities, writing letters to to different individuals. I wrote different letters to my mother, reassuring her I was okay in the army and so on. Then compared to how sarcastic and cynical I was writing back and forth with my friends. So I kind of developed the ability to not pretend to be different characters, but to actually be different characters within myself through those letters. But what keeps me going now is being... Picking a topic that is that is that I just immediately connect with. I I read an article in the paper about this guy who went up on a flagpole. He was actually a minister, and he was going to kind of start a church there, up on top of the flagpole. I guess I don't know with the bullhorns like Joe 
uses. And he also had a, his wife was running a cafe at the bottom of the flagpole. Um, and he, the article was about him getting the pole. We had these vicious Santa Ana winds that we have here in Southern California. And it knocked the pole over and broke his leg and put him in the hospital. And so I was completely fascinated with this story. I called, I looked up in the phone book. This is how long ago the, the genesis of the story is. I looked up in the flag, uh, in the in the phone book, and called this gentleman's wife, and to talk to her to find out about what was why he went up there and if he was okay and so on. I don't remember a lot of the conversation except that I said, uh, "Is he gonna, is he gonna go back up after he gets out of the hospital?" And she said, "Not if I have anything to say about it." <laughs> so uh, that was the genesis of the story. And it was just this mystery of like, when I see, you know, articles or stories about people who do the strangest things, you know, like mm-hmm. build a build a cabin out of, you know, tin cans or, or something more magical or mysterious, like paint full paintings on a flat rock, or that's what they do with their life. And things like that have always interested me. And I relate to those things. I'm I'm kind of normal in one sense, but in another way, I feel like a stranger in the world. And I know that most people at one time or another feel that same strangeness. And that's what the book is about. That's That's kind of my ideal reader is somebody who gets that. And, of course, there's a lot of humor in what I write, too. It's not, um, it's not glum stuff. I don't know if that answers the question or not. Yes. It, yeah. No. No. It did. It, yes. It, it definitely did. So let's kind of. Um, so I, and I like the way that you intertwined your answer to the book. And so let's officially get into the book so we can, um, you know, sure. learn a little bit more about the character. So uh, tell us the um, tell us the name of the book. Oranges for Magellan. All right. And and tell us, you know, an overview of, of what the book um, is about. Well, it's about this guy. He's a, at the time the book starts, he's 35. He's a, a substitute teacher. He's unsatisfied with his life, unfulfilled. He's married to uh, Clover. They've been married for uh, 10, 11 years. They have a 10-year-old son named Nate, Nathaniel. Um and it's a it's an unhappy family, not really anything radically dysfunctional except that his obsession with breaking the world record for flagpole sitting, which is 444 days, so he has to sit up there for 445 days to break the record. That obsession um, and his failure to fulfill it, he's had, uh, I think it's seven previous attempts in which he lasts no longer than a week or two and gets down for various reasons um, because he just can't handle it up there being by himself, I think, is the main reason. And so the book opens with him graduating from Dr. Malcolm Carriage's Obsession Seminar, which is a kind of a, all all kinds of a, People, people with all kinds of obsessions go to this uh, six-weekend seminar to get cured of their obsessions. And it opens with him at the graduation night for this seminar, in which he and a number of other people are graduating for their different obsessions. And so he's cured, and Clover, his wife, thinks finally we will have a normal life like other normal human beings. And he's reluctantly gone along with the program because he's kind of accepted that he's not going to be able to do it, so he might as well get the obsession out of his system. Well, the obsession really isn't out of his system. They go to the zoo the next day to celebrate. On the way home, he stops at a, they stop at a little kind of a hole in the wall. Clover doesn't want to stop. Nate doesn't want to stop. But for some reason... Joe wants to stop. Well, he spotted out in front this massive flagpole. 
And that's all it took to trigger him to think, I really need to try this one more time. And that's the door through which they walk uh, for the remainder of the book as he does attempt that that to break that record one more time. And just as when I started the book, many other things happened, uh, regardless of what my plan was in the beginning, many other things happened that I hadn't planned that were wonderful. And just as Joe going up the pole, or just as all of us with our our plans of, what is it, the plans of uh, mice and men and women, uh, that are always interrupted by life itself. So that's uh, that's that's what the book is about. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, is there an excerpt that you would like to read? Sure. The, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. This I write a lot of di- a lot of dialogue, <clears throat> but it, dialogue is kind of hard to read you know, because you lose track of who's saying what. <clears throat> and Joe, when he's up there, he he writes a journal. And this excerpt is from the journal. Um, it is, he started writing it. it. This is his very first, this is his second day up, I believe. And he starts writing this journal. So, so not too long. Um, there was a big brouhaha when he first went up. There was a traffic jam below, and he drew a lot of attention. And on the second day, nobody's there. So that's kind of uh, the state of mind that Joe is in when he writes, when he begins this. My adoring fans have forgotten me already. My 15 seconds were fun. Time to get serious. Time to buckle down. I need a proper desk up here. A man needs a desk. I leaned on the banister, digging the low light on the green hills. A long shadow on the sidewalk caught my eye. It was six or seven store lengths. I shifted from elbow to elbow, and it moved. I realized, it's me. It was me trying to figure out what my shadow was. They're holding parades for the. In this, uh, the book also takes place at the uh, in the er, in 1981 and 1982, right after the hostages were freed in Iran. So that's this reference. They're holding parades for the hostages all over the country. Celebrate, but don't look too far back into history. The past is hungry and will eat your patriotism alive. The wash and dry system I have will do. But 445 days without a shower is daunting. Clover could haul me up a hose. I could soap up and blast myself off like a horse. She found a great lightweight pop-up curtain rig, kind of like the use around manholes, in which I perform my ablutions. I don't know what a story means. This is kind of in reference to his being a substitute English teacher. I don't know what a story... And also what the really in reference to the book itself and the mystery of the pole. I don't know what a story means. There, I said it. Throw me out of teacher world. That's what they want. What does it mean? I get lost in the story, as in the woods. What do the woods mean? The meaning is a primal force. The meaning the writer intends might not be the true meaning at all. The subconsciousnesses of writer and reader are at play together, beyond reason, out of control. Those young wolves, his students, sensed I was pretending to know what a teacher is supposed to know. They watched my dread of being found out leak like blood through my white shirt. Persian rugs for sale won a white tiger on a chain-link fence by a vacant lot up a block where a company of homeless people gather with shopping carts and makeshift shelter every night and by morning are gone like ghosts. Sun's liquor, grand motel, laundromat, post office with old flag, galore nails, day laborers outside house and home, leaning down to every leaving driver. William Golding said of Lord of the Flies, I felt a tremendous visional force behind the whole book, 
How do you teach that? How do you learn it? How do you read it? I'm going to make up my own theory, the new theory of literature as unknowable. A tiny weed with one pink flower pokes up from a crack right in the middle of the sidewalk. Hard to be a flower in the city. I need to lose myself in teaching as I lose myself in reading. I'm asking them to lose themselves. I'll stand up there in the middle of a cloud of unknowing and declare, nobody can tell you what this means, this story, these people, this life. Find out. Decide for yourself. Crash the state of wonder. Then the parents storm the classroom. How dare you tell my kid to think for himself? He's got to get into college and feed us in our old age. Don't be so fancy. Just tell him what the damn story means. I'll be happy to see spring sleep without long johns. I dare to believe I can do this. It's easier to believe the impossible might happen than it is to believe the probable is all there is. The probable is not a happy place to live. That's the end of his little journal entry. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, Thank you. You you mentioned you you enjoy writing. um, You write more dialogue. Um, Tell me a little bit about that. You like to write more dialogue so people can feel the... um, Feel the the um, feel the characters. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. If I had one one thing that I love to do is eavesdrop. Mm-hmm. You know, just listen to even the most mundane conversations between human beings. Is it's just you know I I love the music of language and I think the music of language is most often expressed in people talking because they even if they're trying to hide what they mean or what they're what where they're at they reveal it in the way that they talk and um i just i love to listen to people talk i love to talk myself obviously uh and i just love the the mad, you know the music of language i've always loved the music of language um, the music of words. I can relate. Yeah. 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 That's, that's... I, I write a lot of dialogue myself. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I love to, I use the one, I pop open a book, I'll make sure that it's not just dense description mm-hmm. or narrative. I love to see those mm-hmm. breaks where uh, where there's a lot of white space and, and a lot of uh, a lot of conversation between uh, between the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of a lot of a lot of the story can be told in the conversation. So we can find out a lot about the characters through what is actually being said, um, and 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 also conveying how they're feeling by uh, by the the dialogue as well. So sure, and and hiding a lot of I'd say if one of my themes in writing is miscommunication, mm-hmm. is how so if we if we communicated clearly and simply and honestly probably 98% of the things that are said wouldn't have to be said there would be a lot more silence in the world <laughs> but we hide you know we hide on purpose we hide uh, uh involuntarily because we don't want to reveal who we are uh for you know various fears or expectations you know and like i say i'm i'm when i even want to what i said about letters and being kind of different characters for for different people that i'm writing to the same with people who i talk to i'm but i'm not pretending i'm not putting on a mask so much as i'm just using one part of myself that fits into that particular situation with that particular you know to find a common to find a common language that's that's what's important to me and that's mm-hmm. kind of what i'm aiming at you know they say you're either we either uh afflict the comfortable or comfort the afflicted i'm more comfort the afflicted i'm not so much as you if you've read the book you, you know there's not a lot of politics 
or not a lot of overt politics in there. I'm not right. Right. I mean, <clears throat> so yeah, I I'm, just started reading it, so yeah. uh, you'll have my review within the next couple of weeks. Oh, good. Wonderful. Hey, thank I want to thank you so much for joining the show. Tell the sure. audience the name of the book again and where they can find it. Okay, the title is Oranges for Magellan. And you can find it everywhere. You can find it, uh, just uh, search for, orange, you know, do a Google for Oranges for Magellan. It'll pop up. The first one will be Amazon. The second one will be Barnes and Noble. I don't know that it's in those in stores so much as it's available. And also through, uh, if you want to spend a couple extra bucks to buy it from uh, my publisher, my wonderful independent publisher, Regal House Publishing. Um, <clears throat> and it's available in <clears throat> soft cover and uh, ebook. And also, you can get a little bit more expensive hardcover. At the, but only at the Regal House Publishing. So it's everywhere, and um, <clears throat> I hope people buy it and enjoy it. Have a good time. That, oh, yes, that is great. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today and oh, sure. sharing your work. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Amy, I hope you are um, feeling a little better. Um, but um, we're yeah, going to. I'm here. Yeah, we're going to move on to our um, our second half hour uh, with our with our guests on, and so we have. Um, I'm gonna. All right. So who who do we have who do we have on today? Hi, Hi this is Rich Hostick. Um, Hi, Rich. How, how's it going? It's going great. Uh, we also have my uh, writing partners, Arnold and Lloyd. Hi, Hi there. Arnold, are you there? Yep. And I'm here, too. All right. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to to the show. Um, so um, if you all could um, just spend a few minutes um, telling the audience, you know, who you are and um, how did you come to write a book together? So uh, perhaps we can go through uh, the introductions for each uh, co-author and then we can go into how did this um, relationship blossom into a book. Yeah, let, let me start off. I'll introduce myself, and then if Arnold could answer that question, he's probably the best one to take that one on. So this is Rich Hosek. I am uh, a novelist currently. I previously worked as a television writer and have been writing short stories and stuff like that my whole life. And um, Arnold and I used to be writing partners in television as well. Yeah. Boy. And... <laughs> All so, right. Well, I, I can go. In. Yeah, Arnold, you want to go ahead? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is Arnold Rudnick, and as as Rich so eloquently put together, um, you know, he and I met in college and worked on films together and teamed up to write. And also, uh, while I was a writer, I, I worked at Paramount Pictures and did research for the Motion Picture Group. And uh, when I was tasked with finding the expert in the paranormal for a project that was being developed, uh, I was pretty good at my job. And I found Lloyd Auerbach, who's a, a premier, preeminent parapsychologist in, in the Bay Area. And so Lloyd and I began, um, you know, a work relationship, but quickly became friends. And at one point decided we wanted to create a project and, and, you know, long story short, that project began and Rich and I were teaming up and getting jobs writing. And so the three of us all worked together to create what was at the time Psychops or um, Rainy and Day's Supernatural Sleuths. And um, we had some producers interested and their responses they got was nobody wants to do paranormal. 
And then, uh, so it didn't sell, and then X-Files came out. So this all was before the X-Files, and we had a paranormal investigator and a cop. We had a male-female team looking into the unknown. And so X-Files is a tremendous, you know, show. So there was nowhere to take this for the decade of of X-Files. And after all of our, you know, continued careers, Rich... uh, you know, pulled it out and said, hey, I'd like to novelize this, this script. And so he novelized the, the script into the first book in the series, Near Death, that, that Lloyd and I were excited to see happen and also to be, you know, participate with Rich. And then, um, you know, now to see a second book and there's, there's more books planned in the series, we're just excited that Nate Rainey and Jennifer Day have come to life. And uh, I'm Lloyd Auerbach. I am a parapsychologist um, and author myself. I write, well, most of my books other than these two are actually nonfiction. The majority of them are around the paranormal. Um, I'm, I'm kind of uh, known to be a ghost hunter, ghost buster kind of guy, but in reality, I'm kind of a generalist in the field of parapsychology and an educator. I actually teach courses uh, at through Atlantic University. I teach uh, an online graduate school course, and then I teach a lot of courses for the general public through the Rhine Research Center, which is the longest-running laboratory in the country. It's the legacy lab from Duke University from so long ago. So um, I've I've written a number of books, like I said, nine books in the paranormal, and uh, one on self-publishing and promotion, and working on some other stuff as well. Um, so I'm also a psychic entertainer, mentalist, former magician alongside this kind of a parallel career to it all, just kind of giving me a little extra understanding of how people sometimes mis mislabel things as paranormal when in fact they're not. What's an example of something? Something like that? Yes. Um, yeah, sure. Well, a, you know, a good example, actually, I think, yeah. has been what's been going on with the pandemic. Uh, there were some surveys done by a couple of real estate companies or companies looking at real estate uh, at homeowners throughout the pandemic, especially during the lockdowns. And the in, there was an increase in people reporting that their homes were haunted. In fact, it was a huge increase, uh, bigger numbers we've ever seen before. But in reality, the majority of those kinds of reports, what people were reporting, were unusual noises and sensations that they might have picked up in their home, which really had explanation. They just had never been in their home for 24 hours a day for so many days in a row and never right. noticed things. Right. Right. Oh, no, you know, maybe there was a ghost there or two. Here, there might have been a ghost there here and there. Just decided, oh, I'm getting tired of these people. I think I'll play with them a little bit. But that's pretty unlikely. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's another great example in the in the book too. Um, our main character at the beginning investigates a case where a woman is hears mysterious footsteps in her attic, and that's based on an actual case that Lloyd investigated, uh, in which the right. footsteps turned out to be a, a squirrel rolling walnuts against <laughs> along the attic floor. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes the acoustics in buildings can be a little bit weird, and uh, I'm the one who actually surprised the squirrel in the attic myself. So. <laughs> I would contend that squirrels are paranormal, though, so there is always that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the, the, a good part of the, uh, the book is based on a case that I had. It's actually the case that convinced me that there were um, objective spirits or ghosts or appar- what we call apparitions. And um, this is the case I had back in 1985 with a family that had no motivation. They really didn't need to tell, tell us. Uh, this is back when we had a parapsychology program at John F. Kennedy University. They didn't need to let us know about this. They were not afraid. We got a lot of great information out of the situation, and uh, it was absolutely not a negative thing for them. And fortunately, uh, that was a fortunate thing for for us. But we find that most people, if they have experiences with what we call ghosts, they tend not to be the scary things that the ghost hunting shows promote. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So let's dive into let's dive into the book, right? So so tell us 
about? Tell us, tell the, the listeners, tell us about the story. Starts off with a bank robbery, and uh, unfortunately, it goes a little bit wrong. Uh, the robbers get caught in progress. One of them manages to escape, but in the process of doing so, she gets killed. Mm-hmm. So we start off with this, this situation where we kind of set up the backstory for what's going to come. Then we sort of reintroduce the characters that we uh, introduced in the, the novel Near Death. So uh, Nate Rainey and Jennifer Day are uh, – well, Nate's an ex-police detective, and Jennifer Day is an anthropology professor – who also moonlights as a parapsychologist. Uh, she's based very, very closely on Lloyd's life, actually. She's also a magician, uh, has, a, has an academic career, and all that kind of stuff. So we get to see them sort of interacting, and they're trying to get their fledgling business together. So in the, in the previous book, they teamed up to create Rainy Day Investigations, uh, where they take on cases with a paranormal angle to them, but things aren't going as well as they had hoped. Then then we find out that, that the afterlife is definitely a standalone book as well. I mean, yeah. it's book two in the series, but it yeah. it introduces the characters. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, they're meant to be standalone um, uh, novels, so uh, you don't need to start with near death. You can jump right in with afterlife and then go back. Um, then we are introduced to Danny, who is a little boy who has uh, what his parents think at first is an imaginary friend. But it turns out this imaginary friend is a middle-aged woman. And uh, one day uh, he is, um, she sort of guides him up to the attic to where she hid a box of photos. And his parents discover him going through this box of photos, and they start wondering if maybe this imaginary friend isn't so imaginary. And they call Rainy and Day. So they come in to investigate the story. But while this is going on, her husband, who did get caught in the, in the uh, robbery and was in jail for the last 15 years, gets out, and their old partners sort of uh, team up with him to sort of try and find where she had left some of the loot that she got away with. Allegedly, there's a, a necklace worth $10 million that she stole, but no one knows where it is. People have been searching for it for a decade and a half. So now he's out of jail, and uh, his partners are, like, anxious to finally cash in on their robbery, and they see Danny as, like, maybe this is our way to find out where she hid the money. That is great. So really trying to tie together um, the overview of what the book is about. Um, so is there an excerpt that um, someone can read to really get the audience, um, you know, hooked into the actual book, the words, the flow, uh, so they can know more about um, your writing styles? Yeah, I think I can pull up a chapter. Yeah, that's great. Mind if I do that? That's great. And of course, you know, there is an excerpt of the book on uh, on Amazon if someone clicks on the look inside as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, hang on one second. I will pull that up there, guys. I, I um, have a great chapter that sort of introduces um, where Danny finds the photographs because um, it, it does yeah. kind of give a flavor for yeah. the book. They're all great chapters. So why don't we try a little bit of paranormal? Why don't you give us a page number? And Rich will go to that page number and exit that portion. I, I can't give you a page number. It's on Kindle, my copy. Well, I don't have the physical book yet. So while, while you're looking for the perfect excerpt to, to really get the audience, um, you know, uh, you know, geared up for, for the actual book um, before they purchase it. Um, tell me about the business of co-authoring. When I say the business, how does it work? So are, so as far as uh, is there a contract, um, you know, how do you um, – how do you write? Uh, does someone write a chapter or everyone writes a chapter um, based off of their area of expertise? So tell me about the business of, of being a co-author. So I'll jump in on that one first, Rich, if you don't mind. So, so Rich is really the heavy lifting on, on these books. Um, they're, 
there, Lloyd and his expertise reviews everything and gives a lot of feedback. I support where I can and and keep things in line for, you know, the character voices and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, any time, Rich and I and, and Lloyd and I as well have had decades of working together and collaborating. And when people write together, it, it could be any number of ways. But, yes, we went into mm-hmm. this with a contract. We went into this with an understanding of how we would divide everything up from credits and and rights and and putting things together. Um, but yes, for these particular books, Rich is taking the heavy lifting first on developing a story that we then work together to break further and do feedback. And then Rich takes a pass at the manuscript, uh, which really helps in in this case to have a unified voice. Um, right. You know, like Rich said, he and I wrote for over a decade in, in television, and we would do what you described. We would write one scene, and he, you know, I'd write one, he'd write one. Then we'd put it together, and, and we got that worked out. And Lloyd's worked on other projects with us. Um, this particular one is a lot more, I think, linear, but there's also decades mm-hmm. of trust between, between all of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've really- worked on a couple of – I was going to say I've worked on a couple other books uh, as a co-author, and, and they were both very different in terms of my role. Uh, with one of them, I was the lead author, but working with my colleague, Annette Martin, who was a psychic, and we, we pulled together material uh, from each of our perspectives and actually put it in from that, pers- from that, in that way in the book. But we had to sign a contract with a publisher, uh, and we both had to sign uh, right up the front, right up front. The publisher didn't care how much of what of the book each one of us wrote. Right. It was a matter of we were responsible. Period for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one I co-authored a book called ESP Wars. There was an existing book uh, that had contributions from three other authors and actually a few other people, and I was brought in to uh, put a front piece and a back piece, kind of a the opening chapter and closing chapter summary of the book. It's all about the U.S. and Soviet governments. Uh, psychic spying programs, and I then was made uh, was asked to create a unified voice throughout the whole thing. So I rewrote a good portion of the book since the writing styles were either academic or um, the translations from the Russians weren't that great. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So it just really depends for any of these projects to decide with your co-authors what you're going to be actually doing. Yeah, I have and, and Rich is kind of writing I... it, but reading minds anyway. So we just figure he's reading our minds when he puts it on paper. Right. Well, I, I, do, re, I do rely on a expertise in terms of the uh, paranormal aspects. He, he takes a pass and sort of like looks at the parts where the Jennifer is doing a lecture or an interview and making sure I'm not, I'm, I've got the terminology correct and I'm not going too far afield from, from what the actual experiences that uh, people investigate are like. Well, and you, you also, Rich, used quite a bit. Uh, Lloyd, Lloyd wrote the handbook, ESP, Hauntings, and Poltergeist, yeah. which was in good company. That was actually also used by Bruce Joel Rubin when he was writing the movie Ghosts. Mm-hmm. Right. So I do All right, wanna, I'm ready if you guys are. Yeah, I do want to kind of recap a little um, about what I um, actually heard um, everyone say. Um, so basically, you know, we, we do have listeners out there who um, they're writing alone, alone and they may want to co-author. And so one of the, the things that, that I, I kept hearing um, is, you know, you definitely, no matter how you choose to divide up the work, there definitely needs to be, um, the tone should be one voice, right? So it shouldn't sound like mm-hmm. three or four different people are writing a book. Right. It should sound like one person is writing it, but um, the, the many different authors are contributing to the work. Um, so Absolutely. I, I mm-hmm. And the other uh, part that I want, you know, our listeners to, to understand as well, um, you know, no, no matter no matter, you know, the end result, the beginning of the project that you all sat down and figured out who was going to do what, who was going to be responsible for what. And, you know, you know, those particular parts, um, everyone was, was held accountable for 
what they were going to contribute to the book. I know you have a long working relationship, um, but accountability is definitely important. And for those who are listening out there who want to venture into co-authoring, I think that's a really good place to make sure you have that understanding, um, you know, before the project. It definitely, yes. in, in, in any collaboration, it's so important to have that agreement in advance. It's almost like you're not even planning to succeed if you don't if, – if you're like, let's wait and see what we have when we're done. What happens if it doesn't get finished? What happens if it gets rewritten? What happens if the studio is interested in, in a series and you disagree on it? You need to plan for it to be – successful and have those things in place in advance to have a chain of title that is is clear and not end up with a half-finished book that is sitting on a shelf that nobody can touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Yes, let's move right into the excerpt. Okay. Maureen Everly knew that she was dead. She no longer felt the passage of time like she used to. She didn't get tired or hungry or experience any of the physical needs that used to mark the hours of her day. Exactly how and when that happened wasn't quite clear. Memory was a tricky thing. She knew her name, knew that she had lived in this house, and when she wandered from room to room, she could recall specific events that had happened in each of those places. Little by little, she had been collecting those memories and piecing back together her life. Maureen looked out the windows, but never ventured outside. She had a fear that she only existed this way inside the house, and if she left it, she would lose her tenuous hold on this whatever it was. Was she a ghost? She had a sense that there was some purpose for her, some reason why she hadn't gone to heaven or maybe hell. But that reason was, what that, what that reason was, she didn't know. Maureen couldn't help but smile as she watched Danny sitting at the small desk in his room, drawing intently. He had taken several sheets of paper, folded them in half, and was making a comic book. She tried to follow along with the story. Danny was into pirates, and this story featured a very unlucky one named Eric. He had two peg legs, two hooks for hands, and an eye patch. It took some time for her to realize the boy could see and hear her. It wasn't until he had turned to her one day and asked if she was a friend of his mom. She told him that she wasn't, that she used to live in the house and was happy to see a new family making it their home. So far, Danny was the only one who could see or hear Maureen. She had tried talking to other members of the family, but none of them seemed to be aware of her in any way. When he wasn't there, time seemed to skip around. She would watch him go off to school, and then, in what seemed like the blink of an eye, he would be back, playing with his sister in the backyard until dinner time, and then diligently working on his homework, and then his drawings until bedtime. Sometimes, if she focused, she could take in the house around her like she did when she was alive. She would watch a fly buzz around on a window pane or the sunbeams light up dust notes as they floated across the room. Moving through the house was different. It was more of an act of will than a physical effort. She would imagine herself across the room, in the hallway, down the stairs, and then find herself in that very spot. For a long time before the foreman's moved in, Maureen only remembered being in the room at the end of the hall. It had been her room when she was a child. Although her memories were fuzzy and incomplete, that was something she was certain of. She couldn't remember leaving that room until the day when Marcia and Greg started remodeling the house. She was grateful that they left her room mostly like it was, though the bed was much nicer than the ratty old twin mattress on a rickety frame she remembered. It was around that time she began exploring the rest of the house. The changes Marcia had made were very nice and revealed a beautiful house under the layers of paint and wallpaper that had been added over the generations. But she remained fearful to go outside. One afternoon, she was watching the children play under the large oak through the window of her old room. Danny was making an effort to climb the tree, but was unable to grab a hold of the lowest branches. He tried to scale up to the rough bark of the trunk to get himself closer, and his fingers almost made it around the thick branch, but he came up short and fell to the ground, much to Daisy's amusement. A memory came to Maureen. She was in that tree. She fell. She looked up at the ceiling and a moment later found herself in the attic. Next to the attic window, she could see the foliage of the old oak within arm's reach. Then she remembered something else. The attic had been cleaned, and it was now filled with Christmas decorations and other odds and ends, but the foreman's renovation efforts didn't extend to the space, exposing a space between the studs. 
Maureen went to Danny's room, eagerly awaiting his, ret- his return. The clock told her it would be time for dinner soon, and if reading her, as if reading her thoughts, she heard Marsha call out to the children to come in and wash up. A few minutes after that, Danny raced into his room. Hi, Maureen, he said when he saw his old friend perched on the bed. Hi, Danny. Can you help me with something? She asked. I got to get ready for dinner, he answered. It will only take a minute. Danny smiled. Okay. He was curious. Maureen had often talked to him, telling him stories about her childhood, and she was a good listener, but she had never asked him to do anything for her before. Grab your chair and follow me into the hallway, Maureen said. Danny obediently picked up the wooden chair in front of his desk and carried it out of his room, standing in the middle of the second-floor hallway, below a rectangle in the ceiling that had a chain dangling down from it. Danny had asked his father about it, and he told him it was the attic. Come here and stand on the chair. You should be able to reach the chain, Maureen told him. The boy placed the chair beneath the spot she indicated. The end of the chain was an inch too high, but Danny gave a little jump and managed to grab onto it. He pulled, and the door swung, oh, swung down, revealing a ladder tucked up inside. Move the chair, Maureen instructed. Danny did so. He inspected the ladder and saw it unfolded like a grabber toy he had. He grasped the bottom step and pulled it back. It extended much more easily than he had expected. Are we going up there? He asked. Yes, don't be afraid. It's just like another room. I'm not afraid, Danny declared, then started trudging up the steps. There was enough light coming in for Danny to see the piles of boxes and old furniture. Over here, Maureen said from the window. Danny walked over and looked outside. Wow, I can see the whole yard from up here. Yes, it's beautiful, she said. Why did you need me to help you get up here? Can't you, like, walk through walls and ceilings? Danny asked. Kind of, Maureen answered. But what I need you to do is see if there's a box in that space under the window. Danny kneeled down and inspected the gap. I think I see something. He reached inside, oblivious to the cobwebs and dust, and pulled out a slender box. Maureen had another flash of memories, of her stuffing the box in the hole before crawling through the window and out into the tree. What's inside? Danny asked. Why don't you open it and find out? Danny sat on the floor, placed the box in front of him, and lifted the lid. Daisy skipped into the kitchen and sat down at the table. Did you wash your hands? Marcia asked her. Daisy held up her freshly washed hands for her mom to see. Where's your brother? Greg asked. He went up in the ceiling, Daisy told them, as if it was something he did every day. Marcia and Greg exchanged a puzzled look. I'll go see what's going on, Greg offered. He wiped his hands on a dish towel and walked briskly toward the stairs. About halfway up, he caught sight of the extended attic steps. Then as he got closer, he saw Danny's desk chair pushed off to the side. Danny, are you up there? There was no answer. Greg climbed the ladder to the attic. It only took a few steps from him to spy Danny at the far end of the narrow space, looking through photographs of an old, dusty box. What worried him more was that he appeared to be having a conversation with someone. Danny, what are you doing? he asked as he completed the ascent into the attic and crossed over to where his son was sitting. Hi, Dad, Danny said, smiling. I helped Maureen find her old pictures, told Greg about Danny's odd imaginary friend, but they both had written off to his active imagination. Danny pointed to a photograph of a man and a woman sitting on a porch that looked very much like the one in front of their own home. He tapped the face of the woman. That's her, he said. Greg sat down across from Danny and picked up the photo. He turned it over and saw, written on the back in casual script, Maureen and Dale, summer, 99. He glanced down at the floor. There were a multitude of other photos spread out. Some were contemporaries of the one he held. Most of them were much older, black and white snapshots mixed in with a few faded Polaroids. Is this how Danny came up with his imaginary friend? Had he found these photos and used them as inspiration to bring her to life? He felt something cold over his shoulder. But when he looked, there was nothing there. Thank you so thank you so much for sharing that uh, excerpt for us. Um, if you can tell the audience uh, where they can find the book, so where they can find the book. Um, Place to go is to the, our website, rainyandday.com. It's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. So it's rainy and day with R-A-N-E-Y and then day spelled D-A-Y-E. All right, and give us the name of the book again and all of your names as well. Sure, the book is called Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation, and my name is Rich Hosek. 
My name's Arnold Rudnick. And I'm Lloyd Auerbach. It has been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you so very much for sharing this time in our space. Um, um, this is Mackenzie Stewart. And I'm Amy yeah. Shannon. Anything that you need to know about us is on our website, wetheaftershow.wixsite.com slash home. Join us again Thank next week. Have a nice night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.